Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Zuvine for May 14th, 2023. I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Join me as always, welcome Catherine Smith. Greetings from Atlanta. And welcome Tim Shifflett. Good evening, sir. All right, excited about tonight's Mother's Day episode. Happy uh, Mother's Day to all our listeners out there that may be mothers. Um, tonight, in about 20 minutes, we're going to have coming back to the, for the second time on the show, Milan Singh, we had Milan on last time, he was going to Yale. Now he's uh, completed his first year at Yale. He's been writing for the university newspaper, so we're going to talk to him about um, experiences and um, political issues of the day because he's been writing a lot both in Slow Boring and on the um, Yale Daily News uh, about politics. And so we're excited about that. But until then, we've got things to talk about. I think in weeks leading up to this, we had mentioned it, but there was a big town hall uh, in New Hampshire that was uh, conducted by CNN last uh, midweek, Wednesday, uh, where CNN uh, met in New Hampshire, had a group of Republican and Republican-leaning independents uh, be an audience for ex-President Donald Trump. Um I guess it's the first town hall of the 2024 convention. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, presidential race. Um, and this one obviously was quite controversial because you ha- kind of have to handle Donald Trump a certain way, and Donald Trump doesn't really allow himself to be handled in that way. Um, and so you knew going in it was going to be um, a dicey situation to say the least. Um, <clears throat> Catherine, um, I think even if you didn't watch the thing, like I didn't watch the thing, I watched a lot of clips later, read a ton about it. What were your takeaways of what you've consumed about this thing? Well, you know, my takeaways were the usual takeaways whenever I either hear and watch former President Trump or read what he says. Uh, it's mind numbing. And uh, hard to make any sense of. And sometimes I'm relieved that I can't understand it because it makes me think I'm not as as rattle-brained as he is. Continues his, you know, same old rants about, you know, the election, the wall, the, you know, stupid people that are running the everything and. It's just, uh, for me, it's very depressing to read. I just, uh, it harkens back to the days when he was president, which were really rough days, I think. So that's my take on it. Yes. Uh, Tim, I guess you deserve combat pay because you actually watched the thing in its entirety live. Now, I sent y'all, Chris Cezilla wrote, the 55 craziest lines from the town hall, um, were there more than 55? Were there not 55? Your take on that. Well, let's put it this way. The CEO of CNN was defending their decision to have Trump on there, Chris Light or whatever his name is. And he said, you don't have to like the former president's answers, but you can you can't say that we didn't get them. Well, I watched it, and yes, I can say we didn't get any answers. He consistently did not answer questions, and when he did say, I, I'm, he wasn't 10 seconds into talking, and he was already lying about the 2020 election and this and that and the other, and uh, it, it, it was it, it was awful. The, the, the moderator of, of Caitlin Collins 
uh, she wasn't up to it, guys. She it, Trump took the thing over from the get-go, and he just pummeled her. He just muffled her. And uh, we didn't we didn't know this till yesterday, by the way. But the stage manager had walked out there before it ever came on the air and asked the crowd, not that told the crowd that they could clap and cheer, but please no booing. Well, so that's what they did. They clapped and cheered. And it just turned really into a a Trump uh, rally. It, it was. Uh, it, it, it was hard to watch. He attacked uh, Pence, Pelosi, oh, the Capitol Police. The moderator said she is a nasty person. Of course, E. Jean Carroll, the day after she won that lawsuit against him, there he was standing out there attacking her again. Uh, he just as good as said we'd pull out of Ukraine and give it to Russia and and he basically said he was going to pardon most of the Capitol rioters, and uh, he hinted at a national abortion ban. And I guess the only people that were elated about it, from what I heard, was Trump's advisors. Well, they should have been. This this, this should have never happened. Uh, the Some media outlets don't learn. Yeah, and, and let's get to CNN and Caitlin Collins, and, and really, I mean, we'll get all that in a minute. Let's stick to, you know, the political part of this first, because there's so much there. Um, actually, the president's um, advisors were pretty happy because I, I, I was asked my takeaway by a friend of the show for her paper, and I sent something into this effect. Donald Trump really helped himself in the primary Republican race for the nomination. But he helped Joe Biden for the general election because all those things he said, he did, you know, own the abortion ban. Um, he did talk about, you know, let's, uh, you know, really pretty was pretty pro-Putin on the Ukraine war. And then um, another thing that I think is kind of crazy is he, because, you know, of course, we know he's going to say rigged election and all that nonsense, but he actually talked about how he finished the border wall. Well, if you finish the border wall, in theory, this, you know, mystery invisible curtain. Now, it used to be a beaded curtain, like Nancy Pelosi said. Now it's an invisible curtain, and it works. It's this great thing that's actually going to keep people from crossing the border one way or the other. Well, then why are you complaining about how you know open the borders are? Because he said that too. So I'm just completely confused on how this border wall actually functions if you claim it doesn't function. Um, so it was just a bunch of absolute nonsense. Um, Catherine, to that point, did he hurt himself in the general election with what he said? Uh I don't know. It's it's so hard for me to judge it. It doesn't. I, I probably, but I think it, in the general election, it really usually, for the most part, comes down to, you know, either I'm a Republican and I vote for the Republican, or I'm a Democrat, I vote for the Democrat, with some independents in between. So. Uh, you know, maybe some of those independents are swayed by this. They're persuaded by this, but it's so hard to tell um, this early, like what what kind of impact something. I, I mean, this could be forgotten, you know, in three weeks, for all we know. So uh, it's difficult to say, but uh, we can be hopeful that it did. I mean, yeah, it's pretty late in lies. Yeah. He laid it on tape, though. I think this is kind of like, you know, whenever Mitt Romney said the 47% comment, it was months away from the election, but the Obama campaign used it over and over. Um, you know, it's what you say will be held against you. Um, Tim, your take on that, did he, I guess we'll ask both parts of it, did he help himself in the Republican primary, which according to the polls, he doesn't really need much help in, and did he hurt himself in a possible general matchup? 
Yeah, he hurt. He helped himself a lot in, in the re- Republican primary. Uh, it, it made it look like he walked out and the room was with him, or, or like the people were with him. Mm-hmm. Um, a, a lot of the clapping they're doing for him, I could see the Republicans cutting commercials out of this for Trump. I can certainly see the Democrats cutting commercials for the general election out of this. My favorite is when he basically said we should default on the debt. Oh, that well, was a big now, one, yeah. If the, if the uh, Republican House goes ahead and, and, and pushes us uh, to that, uh, you know, there there's there's the commercial. There's a... Uh, several million people out of work and stuff sitting at home that are going to be watching Donald Trump say that on behalf of the Republican Party. So, so yeah, the, uh, there, there's a lot of opportunities for some good commercials for Trump's people in the primary and certainly for the Democrats uh, in, in, in the fall. It's, it's oh, boy. And I'm going to be surprised if Eugene Carroll doesn't sue him again. <laughs> yeah, but will he care? Uh, probably no. Yeah, well, um, David, I, go ahead. He called, he called the police officer that shot Ashley Babbitt a thug and yeah. called her a patriot, and they cheered when he did yeah. that. My goodness. You know, well, well, and that's the biggest problem with Trump is – and a lot of candidates that are even more close to him. If he said those crazy things and no one agreed with him, you know, there's 330 million Americans. Of course some people are going to say some crazy things. It's that a party that had 70 million people vote for it agrees with him, at least you know, e- easily 60 million of them. Um, that's the problem. Is is they think that he's he's the um, vessel for their voice, um, and I heard this. I heard he was so pleased he wants to do this again. Now, of course, yep. he could do this again at a town hall, but he's like, hey, I'll do this again on CNN. Let's get into CNN and let's get into Caitlin Collins. I will say this: I feel sorry for her because I think if you are going to try to be a professional journalist, it's really hard to handle the way Donald Trump goes about business. I, I think somebody like a John Stewart might have been the person that could have handled it, and of course Trump wouldn't have agreed to that. Um, it's kind of like someone doing a classic debate and then somebody else doing a put-down contest. And so she got set up for failure. So I feel sorry for her. I think it's funny, though, that they, they announced that she was going to have the 9 o'clock show uh, primetime, which – I don't know that it really matters at this point. We'll get longer conversations in CNN. But I wonder if they go back on that. Um, Kim, you watched it. Um, was there somebody else that they could have just readily gotten that would have been better than Caitlin Collins? Or is it well, just the thing, pretty much every regular person on their staff would have gotten? No, I, I, think what, I think what probably happened there in order to get Trump they probably had to pretty much agree to everything that Trump's staff asked for. Uh, you know, they they had to agree to the makeup of the audience. They had to uh, settle on a moder- moderator that Trump and them would agree to. Uh, so, uh, they're, they're, of course, CNN has a lot tougher people. Imagine Van Jones out there with him. Or, or uh, he would have never done that. Or Anderson Cooper. Cooper yeah, wouldn't Anderson. have let him uh, act <laughs> like that. Je- neither would John King have let him act like that. Uh, but Trump would have never agreed uh, to those people. And therefore, uh, you know, it, uh, it it wouldn't have happened. So, I, you know, I, I think that's just a, a moot point, CNN. Uh, pretty much, they they that that was who Trump and them wanted. That's who they got. Well, and I'll say this: I did watch a little bit of the coverage after. I think it was on YouTube the next day. I do think Jake Tapper uh, might have done a little tougher job 
But I'll say this. Remember Chris Wallace? You know, everybody thinks Chris Wallace is a pretty tough interviewer. During the debate, that first debate in which Trump just, you know, did a general election version of what he did the other night, um, and then Joe Biden kind of said, will you shut up, man? He ran all over Chris Wallace. So I, I mm. think it is a style issue. Um, and also, obviously, Trump, I think, looked bad in that this is the second time he's had a situation with a journalist, first time being Megyn Kelly, where it's a female journalist that he really goes out of a way to treat that person badly because of their gender. Um, Catherine, same kind of line of thinking. Do you think somebody else could have done a definite better job than Caitlin Collins, or was she kind of just set up? Well, I think she was kind of set up, but I'm just wondering if anybody else would have done it. Like, would Anderson Cooper have done that? I don't know. I'm not sure he would be willing to, to you know, participate. I don't know, but participate in that, like, clown show. So you have to wonder, you know, how how – how that yeah. all came about. And I think Tim makes a good point that uh, Trump and his people probably had a lot to say w- about who was going to do it, what the format was going to be, like you said, who the audience was, everything. So, um, but yes, I think a more seasoned, uh, tougher, uh, you know, experienced uh interviewer would have probably done a better job but uh, again he might not have gotten the gotten been able to do it not gotten the gig so yeah i i, mean, I do think if he would, if they could have gotten to agree to anybody i think john stewart would have made for interesting television don't know if john stewart would have done it don't know if cnn would have could have gotten john stewart i think he'd have been interesting for somebody on their staff i think jake tapper might have been a decent place to start because um, whereas, like, Daniel Dale's really good at fact-checking Donald Trump after the fact, he doesn't, he's not an interviewer, that kind of thing. Now, let's talk about CNN getting in this real quick. I thought they looked really pathetic. Like, it was all about ratings, the reason they did this, and they're just rudderless, seemingly. There's no way they're going to get the right-wing audience. There's no way they're probably going to get the left-wing audience, and certainly moves like this are going to help them there. So, uh, Tim, I'll go to Tim first. Tim, what's the play here? Well, yeah, yeah, the play was definitely for ratings. They they could use some. They've been uh, they've been struggling a little bit, and they have had some changes, you know, at the upper echelons of that network. Uh, new people running things, and. Uh, people with conservative backgrounds now who are share, major shareholders, and they are trying to track a little bit toward the right. Uh, perhaps they saw an opportunity to uh, move in that area because of, of what has happened over at Fox. Maybe they thought they could pick up a bunch of their viewers. I don't know. I imagine the ratings, I didn't see them, but I imagine they were uh, pretty good for this thing, especially, you know, when people like me are watching it that normally don't watch CNN on a on on a weeknight unless I turn over to see what Anderson Cooper or somebody like that saying. So, uh, yeah, I think it was all about the ratings and, and nothing else. Yeah, they did win the ratings for at least cable news um, that night. They outpaced Fox. They outpaced um, MSNBC. Uh, but that was for one hour in time. I have a feeling that this, whatever, if they lost a tenth of a point, uh, for every show for the next five nights, um, that that's not going to be worth it. I, I kind of feel bad for him, Catherine. I get the idea that really hardcore people that love to watch news all during prime time that are right wing are going to watch some combination of Fox, OAN, and Newsmax, and people that are more left wing that want to watch a lot of news content are going to watch MSNBC. And CNN's kind of like the people that don't watch as much news. But they hear about some big story that happens, and they want to catch some news coverage. They might be a little more apt to turn to CNN, but that's kind of – you don't get to dictate that. So if that's the case, 
what does CNN do to try to gain market share? Because I don't think this is the play. Yeah, I mean, that's a really good question. Uh, you know, there's sort of the middle ground, um, you know, what, what's their tagline? America's most trusted. Is that them? No, that's yeah, not yeah. Well, that's um, what they say, yeah. Variation of it. Yeah. Uh, so I think, I think you're right. Like, I remember um, – I mean, this was a long time ago, but on 9-11, we all turned on CNN, right? That's what we did. And uh, I think, I mean, I even tend to do that when I'm looking for, you know, I I hear that there's a headline. I tend to go to CNN online. Um, But I don't know how you, how they, you know, edge themselves back into the market without, you know, doing something ridiculous like, you know, having some, you know, Howard Stern or, you know, some, you know, who, who, I don't know. I, you have to you have to create some kind of um, destination, and I'm not sure that CNN is really a, you know, like Tim said, like an ongoing destination. It's a, I, yeah. Yeah, you, you say that, that, you know, Howard Stern, you mean uh, Charles Barkley and Gail King? Apparently, <laughs> that's one of the um, show ideas, which I think that's kind of funny. And that Charles Barkley is excellent on TNT basketball coverage, um, but <laughs> every night or how, how often his show will be on with Gail King, who is like, I've seen clips of CBS Morning News, and, and he's she's usually not as impactful is Nate Burleson and, and Tony, I forget Tony's last name, the other female host, I mean, she's the, you know, it's just a weird deal. Um, so I don't know what they do. It does feel like the core ought to be, look at who, you have Judy Woodruff, who used to be on your network. She does the PBS News Hour. They do Frontline. Those, if you took those five hours during the week, the two hours of Frontline, those seven hours of programming are probably better than anything on any cable news network um so i might start there and copy a really good one hour time slot i don't know when good newscast like pbs news hour and then come up with a frontline like show that comes on once a week i'd start there and that's a little bit different than anything they've been trying but right now i wanted to go to something that we know was successful before the college year started this past year we had milan sing on and we welcomed him we do now that he's finished uh, with his first year at Yale, welcome back to the Kozu by Milan. Hello, hello. It's great to be here. How are you guys doing? Yes, good to have you back. Well, Milan, last year we had you on, and you had been an intern with Slow Boring. You took what's called mm-hmm. the proverbial gap year. And, of course, people have varying um, ideas on what that means, but yours was, like, super rigorous working with Matty Iglesias on this, but now you've gone to college. How was um, your first year at Yale? Oh, you know, it was quick. It went by a lot faster than I expected, Um, which is, I mean, it's. I I had a great deal of fun. I learned a lot, but it really does hit you like, wow, you're 25% of the way through in the next three or, like, before you know it, you're going to be graduating. But I, I had a really great time. I had some great classes. I met some great people. Um, some of them are listening, and yeah, I, I had a really great time. I can't complain. Yeah, well, and when you were on last time, we didn't know that you would be doing this, but it makes perfect sense, given that you were already writing for a national news source. Um, you wrote for the Yale News Daily. How did that come about? Yeah. First off. Um, so the way it works is if you're a student, anyone can submit an article, whether that's a straight news piece for a section or an opinion column like what I do, to the news. You don't have to be a member or anything, but if you want to become a member, you spend a semester doing what's called healing, which healing as in H-E-E-L-I-N-G, which is basically you have to write a set number of articles. The requirements are different if you want to eventually join the A section or the opinion section as a regular, as a staff journalist. Um, I think I had to do like four opinion columns in a semester and then you get inducted 
which means you, you go to the YDN building, you put on a suit, you stand in a dark room, you do some kind of goofy challenges. And then you can apply, in my case, for a staff spot as a regular columnist, which entails writing, I think, biweekly for them, once every two weeks. Um, yes, I, I went through that process, got my column, and, yeah, here we are. So let me get this straight. You write some yeah. really high-quality, sophisticated writings about political topics or something else, and at the same time you go through some version of pledge. Yeah, there's the, the pledge is only, I think, one night. I think it was after one of the formals. Um, it's, it's just one that you go, like, I think first they had us stand in, a, in the main newsroom. Like, you have to take turns, like, hopping on a table and, like, I think various challenges. I think one was, like, recite the alphabet backwards. Then you go upstairs and you sit on the floor of the main room for, like, an hour. They make you really wait. And then they, you take turns again. You stand on the table. You do some kind of goofy skater challenge. Then you take an oath on an old book. Um, but, yeah, and then prior to that, it's just you have to write a certain amount of articles. Uh, in order to qualify for being inducted. Yeah, I, Tim Catherine, I think Milan is now in Skull and Bones. He doesn't know it. We'd ask more. They might have to kill us if we got too deep. So we're going to leave that one alone. Um, yeah, Milan. These are very common. These are David. These are very common uh, practices at. Old traditional <laughs> colleges and universities. It was, was low-hanging fruit. I had to, I had to go there. Oh, no. There's a different Ivy League. I wouldn't have gone there. <laughs> well, now let me ask you a question. You kept working for Slow Boring and kept maybe not as rigorous as you were before, but, I mean, I see you on their mailbag other duties. <laughs> Tell us how about balance and the duties between the regular demands of Yale and um, Slow Boring. Yeah, so I, I work a lot less than I used to for Matt. Matt knows this. Me, him, and Kate have talked about it. Uh, but, yeah, because I'm in school, I don't have as much time. I think I get paid for 20 hours a week. I know that I don't work 20 hours a week. I know that Matt and Kate are both aware of this and they don't mind. Uh, but I'm on call 20 hours a week, so that's kind of the expectation. If it was needed, if there was a very busy week, which so far hasn't really happened. Yeah, I mean, it is it is a balance. Um Mostly I'm doing discussion threads now, scheduling things, any sort of admin work. Like, you know, if people email me saying, oh, I have an issue with the posts not getting to my inbox and they're not in spam either, I can, you know, try to figure out what the issue is there. Uh, if there's charts that need to be made, I do that. And I still write every now and then for them. Um, yeah, but it's it's been a pretty good balance. It's, of course, been nice to have the income during the year, just having a bit of spending money, um, but, yeah, the, the balance has uh, definitely shifted more in favor of schoolwork, as I think it should. Um, but, yeah, I'm, I'm still very happy to be part of the team. I have a great time there. Yeah. Yes. Well, one more question for me, and this is about one of your columns at the Yale Daily yeah. News. And that was uh, you turned the column, uh, it was about Joe Biden's reelection, and you subtitled it, <laughs> Let's Go Brandon. Now, obviously, even <laughs> around here in the south, the rural south where I live, like, I mean, even the hardcore magas have gotten the menu, uh, the memo that that's just passe, and <laughs> no yeah. one uses that anymore. But you chose to use that as a frame. Tell us why you decided yeah. to do that, and just tell us about the column and your thesis in it. Yes. So I had initially titled it when I first wrote it on my computer in a Word document. I titled it Status Quo Joe. And then I think right as I was editing it, I sent it to a friend, and I was like, this is what I'm writing. And I was like, oh, I might title it Let's Go Brandon if they let me get away with that. Um, it is kind of passe. Um, like the, it's not really, I think, a, a meme on the right as much anymore. Um, I know that some people in the White House or around that kind of area, pro-Biden people, have kind of co-opted it, you know, with the whole dark Brandon thing, to make it, you know, some sort of pro-Biden statement. I know Biden himself made a joke about that at the White House Correspondents' Dinner. Um, I just chose the title because I thought it was a nice kind of, in, I guess, flip of what had previously been a pretty anti-Biden thing, and now it's broadly speaking seen as like a somewhat corny, but you know, pro-Biden inside joke for people who spend way way too much time reading about this. But yeah, the thesis of the piece was that I think that Biden is a favorite for re-election, conditional 
on going up against Trump in a rematch, which I think is likely. I think Trump is very likely to win the Republican primary. Um, and I, I, I'm happy to go into why I think Biden is the favorite and, you know, some possibly mitigating factors, things that might help his opponent in 2024. Yes. Well, Catherine and Tim may have some questions about those factors, so I'm going to pass it to Catherine. He'll pass it to Tim. All right. So I'll pass it over to Catherine right now. Okay. Hey, con- congratulations on completing your first year at Yale. How exciting. Oh, thank you. Um, thank you, thank you. I want to ask you about uh, the Dobbs effect or, mm-hmm. and I mean, larger than just Dobbs, like all this uh, reaction to Dobbs across, especially in the South, but really across the country, um, all these state legislatures both passing further barriers to access, but then some, a, a handful, um, increasing mm-hmm. access. And it's yeah. just like, I, I just, I ha I mean, I, I work in the, I work in that space. So I'm interested. Um, and I've spent a lot of time thinking about it. You know, abortion is supported by like 70% of the population. Do you think yeah. this is going to do harm to the Republicans in the 2024 election? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I think, so the, the context is that there's a well-known phenomenon in politics, and I'm sure you guys know it, so I'm sure many listeners know, but for those who don't, called thermostatic public opinion, where um, the general public, generally speaking, is mostly sat- satisfied with the status quo, is fairly risk-averse, and does not really want big structural change in either direction, which is why you see, you know, of course, the people who run political parties, who choose to dedicate their lives to this, are not like normal people and are generally much more ideological, much more ideologically extreme, much more ideologically consistent in whether in a liberal or conservative direction. And like you see, like when Biden had a trifecta in 2021, they passed, him and the Democrats passed a very large social spending bill. When Trump and the Republicans had a trifecta, they passed a very large tax cut. Um, But people, the people generally speaking are not as ideological as politicians. And when politicians have enough power to make big changes in public policy, they often face a backlash. Usually that's why the president's party loses the midterms, because the president and his allies in Congress have made some big changes and people backlash for that. With Dobbs, I think it was very different. My guess, and I think during the midterm campaign, I didn't even, I personally underestimated how much of a factor this would be. But I think absent Dobbs, I think Republicans would have swept the midterms or would have done much better than they had, maybe outside of Secretary of State races where election denial was much more of a, a salient topic. But I think the biggest policy change under Joe Biden's presidency has not been a move to the left. Um, it's been a move to the right. It's been the Supreme Court striking down Roe v. Wade, which established a constitutional right to abortion, and had made that the status quo for the last 50 years. I think there's very strong evidence. You can look at ballot referendums in Kentucky and Michigan and Kansas um, on abortion. You can look at... Uh, which politicians, uh, based on their personal positions on abortion, have lost or won races. Um, Yeah, I think it's a very big deal. I think, for example, Trump, for all his things, does have a decent eye for public opinion. I know before the midterms, he privately remarked, according to the New York Times, to his friends, that Dobbs was, quote, bad for Republicans. He has said, um, he has refused to say, I will ban abortion nationally if I'm reelected. He says, you know, it's a state's rights issue. Ron DeSantis, on the other hand, signed a 12-week ban before he won re-election, now signed a six-week ban. I think if he's the nominee, that absolutely, if DeSantis was the nominee, I think that would absolutely make it harder for him to win critical states, especially in the Midwest where the, uh, where the tipping point voters are more secular than they are in the South, have generally more pro-life attitudes. Um, I think that, would, could arguably, if this, that move alone could arguably put, in my opinion, key states like Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, out of reach for DeSantis if he was the nominee. I really do think it will be a big albatross around the Republicans party, Republican Party's neck. And I think it will be hard for them to get rid of because a lot of their core base, a lot of evangelicals, a lot of top leaders, fundamentally, ideologically believe that abortion is murder. And if you believe abortion is murder, of course you're not going to say this is a state's rights issue. You're going to say we need a national ban. We need to ban as much of this as possible. I think that view is out of step with the majority of Americans for good reason. But I think 
it will take at least a few cycles of probably them losing some winnable races in order for them to finally say, you know what, we need to adjust, we need to tell the hardliners in our coalition to go kick rocks, and we need to do what it takes to win a majority. Yeah, but it's going to be really hard for them to do that after yeah, could, all these, after decades of, uh, of um, you know, fighting for it. And that's the oh, thing yeah. that I, I've, always, I've always thought it was uh, strange, not really, um, but they've had, you know, the power to do something like this many times, but they never have. And those of us yeah. who are very... Um, cynical <laughs> think that it was because it's a good fundraising tool, right? Like, oh, if you can oh, 100%. fight, if you can say, I'll fight for, you know, to get rid of abortion, you can raise money. But now uh, I think that I, I, w- I wonder if it's also hurting their fundraising a- abilities because there are a, a lot of um, anti-abortion voters are mm-hmm. single issue voters. Right, that's yeah. really all they care about. So one, now that it's done, they're like, "Oh, I don't need to give any more money to my, you know, Republican mm-hmm. congressman or my Republican senator or whatever, my legislature." Yeah. So it's going to be interesting to watch how this all um, flows out. From, you know, it's happening now, obviously, with Florida and well, they have a ballot mm-hmm. initiative in Florida now to protect yeah. abortion, so that they're trying to push. So. Okay, yeah, well, thank I mean, you very abs- much. Yeah, very, sorry, go ahead. Very, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, sorry. I was just going to say I agree with you completely about the fundraising. Yeah, I've, I've often I've said that for years. Anyway, um, I will pass it to Tim. Thank you so much for being on with us, and I hope you get a little bit of a break this summer and get to <laughs> have some fun, go swimming or something. Oh, go yeah. We got some. <laughs> we'll see what comes up in the cards. <laughs> <laughs> All righty. Okay, Tim. Good evening, Thanks Mr. A lot. Good evening. Good evening, Mr. Singh. Uh thank you for being yes, on sir. again with us. Uh of course, you of course. identified you've identified the Dobbs decision as probably the most problematic issue facing the Republicans, uh uh outside of Donald Trump himself, of course, in the twenty twenty four election. But what mm-hmm. about the Democrats is immigration mm. reform their Achilles heel. I think immigration is certainly not a positive for Biden. I think if you look at uh, polling on how he's handling various issues, his lowest scores are on immigration. Um, I know he's recently ended Title 42 as part of ending the COVID emergency. I know a lot of senators, mm-hmm. especially Democratic senators in swing border states, are you know not pleased with that or messaging against the ending of Title 42. But I really think the biggest issue for Biden heading into 2024 is going to be, as a downside for him, is going to be the economy. Just because, you know, there's a limited amount of space and debate, and I think with abortion taking up a large percentage of it, Donald Trump himself taking up a large percentage of it, and the economy, inflation, I think it's going to be harder, not impossible, but I think harder for immigration to break in. But the economy, Mm -hmm. I think, you know, the good side is, we finally adequately simulated demand. We have a full employment economy. We have unemployment <laughs> at a 50 or 60 year low, but inflation is mm-hmm. still above target and it hurts people's pocketbooks. And mm-hmm. I think some people in the midterms might've said, look, we're not satisfied with the economy, but we're more concerned about Republican extremism on various issues. And so we're going to hold our nose and vote for Democrats. or we're going to vote for the lesser of two evils. But I think, you know, if the economy continues to get worse, if we have a recession that continues through Election Day, I think it could absolutely cost Biden the White House. If we have a mild recession at the end of this year, early next year, and we're in a recovery, still have good unemployment numbers, inflation is back down, I think that mm-hmm. issue gets negated. But I absolutely think the number one concern for the Biden team is probably figuring out how to get the economy in good shape um, ahead of re-election. And just, of course, you know, for the country, it's good to have a good economy mm-hmm. now now since 2018 in particular young voters have been voting in much larger numbers uh i've never mm-hmm. seen it in my lifetime this consistently election after election next year mm-hmm. though if conventional wisdom bears out the two presidential mm-hmm. candidates will be 82 and 78 years of age on Election Day. 
Will young voters uh, still show up? I, I think so. Um, look, a lot of my friends, mind you, my friend group is, of course, not a nationally representative sample, you know, caveat, 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 grain of salt. But a lot of people my age are not incredibly enthused about Joe Biden. Um, you know, of course, I think myself included, all else equal, I would prefer a younger candidate. I think personally the sweet spot for a presidential candidate, in my opinion, would be somewhere between, say, 45 and 65. Um, again, all else equal, I prefer not to elect a president older than 65 at the start of their first term. But, of course, all mm-hmm. else is not equal. And I think that mm-hmm. while in a vacuum, I, I might prefer a younger Democratic candidate. I think if Biden mm-hmm. were to step aside and not run for reelection, the likely alternative, in my opinion, would have a lower chance of beating Trump. And to me, that's the most important thing. I can't speak mm-hmm. to the motivations of people on the Republican side for choosing Trump over DeSantis or over alternative candidates. Um, but I think that will people be happy about it? No. I think ultimately, if it's a binary choice, Biden and Trump, I think a lot of young people who, you know, many were not incredibly enthused about Joe Biden in the 2020 primaries. Um, I mm-hmm. think they'll ultimately come home for Biden. I do think it's something that his campaign is probably going to keep an eye on and probably going to have to work to make sure, hey, we don't have any slippage because, you know, these elections are one on a nice edge. Mm-hmm. Now, Donald Trump has been impeached twice. We had an insurrection that he inspired on his watch. He's the first president since, I believe, Herbert Hoover to have a net jobs loss for the term of his presidency. Uh, his legal problems are mounting. He violates every rule of decorum and decency that you can think of that most politicians wouldn't dare to even think of. And yet, polling consistently shows a pretty close horse race in 2024 if the choices are Biden and Trump. Why is that? Mm -hmm. I think a lot of it comes down to, well, look, my prior is to generally trust the polls. I know the polls missed in 2020. They missed in 2016. And I know a lot of people going into the midterms have basically had the implicit prior of the polls are junk, ignore them. Even though the polls consistently showed a close race, many people expected Democrats getting wiped out. If you look at campaign spending, it's pretty clear that Democrats themselves expected to get wiped out. That didn't happen. So I'm inclined to trust the polls. As to why, a lot of the polls I've seen are something like, you know, 44% Biden, 43% Trump nationally, 46 Biden, 47 Trump. They're pretty close. Um, There are a good amount of undecided voters. I think part of that is down to some – Weak support for Biden among Democrats. You see it in a lot of Biden's job approval. A lot of the reason why his numbers are weak is, of course, he has bad numbers with Republicans, middling numbers with independents, but he has a good amount of weakness among Democratic voters who are likely, you know, not super enthused about the fact that the guy is over 80. That said, Mm -hmm. I do think 2024 will be a close race. Um, Part of this could be that the race will genuinely be close from now until the finish. Part of it could be that people Mm -hmm. are kind of lukewarm on the candidates now as the campaign heats up. Once the nominations are settled, you get into the general election mode. It's it's possible some of those undecided voters could, you know, come off the fences. You know, it is also early. Some people might think, you know what, it's too early for me to make a decision. But if I were were the president's team, I would, of course, be somewhat concerned about these poll numbers. Um, Yeah. Okay, well, there's one more major piece of this puzzle I want to ask you about, and that is the media. We've seen the problems that networks like Fox News have had recently. We've also witnessed uh, the decline in print media in in recent years. So is the future of politics and news the Internet? I mean, I think in large part, yes. Um, the other day, or a few months ago, um, I had to talk to, or I, I, talk, I got to talk to, a uh, reporter at the New York Times, one of the higher-up ones, um, about this, about the transition to digital. It was for a school project, but he told me that when, you know, the New York Times was, re- was originally a print-only business, they eventually transitioned to digital, and the way they were able to keep their edge and still remain one of the top papers is they have an established brand, They have a lot of prestige around that brand, and they have a very subscriber-focused mentality. Their job is to retain subscribers and not necessarily go off the page. 
I do think the uh-huh. future of the media is on the internet in some form. Um, I think it, like, I think you are seeing some fragmentation at the lower levels of the media. Like, a lot of local papers are shutting down or having trouble staying. Right. Open. I don't right. think, like, the New York Times will go under. I don't think CNN will go under. Um, I do think it is a problem. I think in some ways it's about how much choice we have. Uh, you know, back in the day, there were three major networks. It was what? CNBC, NBC, and ABC. And it was Walter Cronkite spoke for most of America, and everyone trusted him. And that was great. Mm-hmm. But if those three major networks decided not to cover something, or for example, you know, I think there's basically a tacit agreement not to cover JFK's affairs or the fact that FDR couldn't walk, you know, that led to some problems. Now we have a lot more independence. We have, or not independence, we have a lot more options, a lot more types of media. Like anyone can start a newspaper if they want to by setting up a website. Um, of course, a lot of it is, is junk. Like most blogs you read are probably low quality, not slow boring. But Mm-hmm. I, I do think the fragmentation of media, it is a problem, but I I do think it's in some ways a problem about the consumer. Like Matt has a bit that he does every now and then as a column, which is like the the reason you see all this bad news and not good news is because bad news is what gets clicks. You know, if it bleeds, it leads. And, you know, people fundamentally, here's one stat I heard, right? If you're at Fox News, the most, like if you, Fox News once published some article, right, about like, these are the two candidates' plans for Social Security for 2020. Just straight news reporting mm-hmm. on what Biden wants to do to Social Security, what Trump wants to do to Social Security. There were a lot of people reading that article, but mostly it was people who only logged onto the site like once a month. Now, those are people who are probably, you know, trying to figure out how to vote, trying to get informed about the candidates' positions on key issues. But they get you a lot less money than the guy who logs onto Fox News every day and reads 20 stories about Hunter Biden even though he kind of already knows what he believes what Hunter Biden is probably committed Republican, that's who gets you the money. And at the end of the day, media is a business, so you're going to chase the money. Um, mm-hmm. So I, unfortunately, I don't have any solutions for all this. But, um, yeah, I do think digital is the future. I do think this fragmentation is an issue. But I do think a lot of that is driven by basically what consumers demand. At the end of the day, businesses are going to give them that. Right. All right, one final question, then I'm going to throw it back to David. Uh, the, largest right. group of, the largest group of declared voters in the United States are now independent voters in places mm. where you register by party. Yeah. So is this country ready at long last for a viable <laughs> third party? I think, I think no. Um, I know a lot of people are independents. Like, my father's a registered independent, but he's still a partisan mm-hmm. Democrat. I think the only Republican he's ever voted for is Charlie Baker, which is like, uh-huh. I think that's not surprising in Massachusetts. We love voting for Charlie Baker as Democrats. But mm-hmm. I think the, a lot of people are registering as independent or no party affiliation. I don't know that that really means much in terms of actual distance from the two parties. Like, I'm pretty sure people have been complaining, like, oh, both parties suck since there were mm-hmm. two parties. And I think uh-huh. a lot of independents in practice lean a certain way, and that lean is, that means they're very similar to a registered partisan voter. I don't think we're uh-huh. ready for a third party just because of the, the fundamental structure of our elections. We use first-past-the-post elections where you can win with a plurality of votes, even if you don't have a majority. And I think any third party, let's say it's a right-wing third party or a left, is going to hurt the side that most aligns with it. And I think there's a very strong incentive to not let that happen. I would love to see reform to our electoral system. I'm a big fan of ranked choice voting or proportional representation. But I think until you get uh-huh. to that, it's very hard to have third parties in a first-past-the-post system unless you have strong regional parties like you see in Canada with the Bloc Quebecois and like you see in uh, the U.K. with the Scottish National Party. Yeah. There you can kind of get around so, the vote-splitting issue by concentrating. Yeah, so so basically the future of third parties, at least in the near future, is what we've witnessed in the past when a third party yeah. movement was all about the person at the head of the movement, like George yeah. Wallace or Ross Perot yeah. or someone like that, and that's the way it's going to be for a while. Yeah, I think so. I think, it's, I think one of the things, for example, that gives Trump a lot of leverage in the Republican Party is that he cares, more, unlike most of them, he cares more about himself individually than the party as a movement for conservatism. And so he can credibly uh-huh. say, if you don't give me the nomination, if you try to impeach me, I will create a third party and I will screw you over in the next election by splitting the vote. 
And I will do that because I don't really care about the movement as a whole. Whereas someone like Bernie Sanders would never do that because at the end of the day, he cares about the movement more than himself. Right. Makes great sense. I appreciate that, sir. And we will send it back to David. David? All right. Yes, Milan, thank you so much for coming on the show tonight. Uh, Before you leave us, of course, we know you're going to probably do a little more over the summer with Slow Boring. Uh, hopefully, you're going to keep on with the uh, the Yale Daily News. And you may have some other things going, of course, social media. Share with our listeners where they can access all of your great content. All right. So first off, you can follow me on Twitter. I, I like to – I use Twitter only to promote things I've written. And I just like to – I like to lurk and read the other tweets. Um, the Twitter is millinsing 3 That's M-I-L-A-N-S-I-N-G-H-0-3. You can find me on Twitter. You can find me on Instagram if you care to do that. Um, it's my name, millinsing, except the first I is a one because I couldn't get the the cleanest username. Uh, and, yeah, I mean, other stuff, I'm, I think I'm cooking up for Slow Boring, a couple pieces, one of them on Narendra Modi, the Prime Minister of India, and one on natural gas and why it's so important, why the rise of natural gas has been so important for a variety of political and economic developments over the last couple of years. Um, yeah, other than that, I'll be in France for the summer. Any of you guys want to come see me in France, I'll be in France June and July uh, with my girlfriend. Hi, Maisie. Um, I told her to listen to this, so I said say hi to her. All right. We're glad to have uh, more live listeners. And that sounds exciting. Have a great time in France. And, Maybe we can get you back when you get back to the States and get uh, oh, yeah. back into the political things. Yeah, of course. Happy to do it. Love coming on the show. All right. Thank you, sir. Thank you so much. Right. We really All appreciate right. having you on. All right. I'll yes. see you guys around. Have a great day. Viva Thank France. you, sir. Yes. Uh, Milton Singh of the Yale Daily News and Slow Boring. Um, uh, you know, always an engaging guest. It's just so basically a young man, um, you know, that's just starting off his college career is so versed in uh, discussing and analyzing politics. So now, Reed, I spend way too much time that, on Twitter. <laughs> let's use the fact that um, Millen, uh, you know, was on with us and is under 25, so let's discuss our next topic, and that would be somebody that we actually did a buy-sell hold on a few weeks ago, Vivek Ramaswamy. He has proposed raising the voting age not back to 21 where it was before the latest amendment during the Vietnam War lowered it to 18. He wants to raise it all the way to 25. Catherine, we know that younger voters are voting in little higher numbers. They're voting a little more Democratic than in years past. But how big of a circumvision, uh, 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 you know, circumventing democracy is this just to try to avoid these demographic trends that Republicans are facing? It's ridiculous. It's almost, it's, it's like, um, to me, it's like the, uh, gerrymandering of districts like we can't we can't get them to vote for us so we'll just figure out a way that that uh, we'll get their votes anyway um so uh or we won't get their votes um it's ridiculous is he also going to raise the draft age to 25 no word on that it's ridiculous it's a i don't know and I don't know who it's meant to appeal to. Certainly the Republican Party must recognize that they've got to get young voters or they're just going to die because you need young voters to vote for you as they age, right? Um, yeah, it was. it's a ridiculous, ludicrous idea. Yeah, and, and I'll make a comment before I throw it to Tim for another question. Um, you know, it seems like the Republicans, they have all these demographic trends that are so against them, and they figure out what can we do to win the next election. It's kind of like somebody that really has a bad financial picture, and they're like, you know, which bill can we pay You know, $10 on? Which bill can we not pay? And which one can we write a letter to? Because we know we don't have the money to pay all the bills. 
but we're just going to band-aid it for this month. And it's kind of like the Republicans don't have a plan to actually you know, diversify their coalition in um, educational levels and racial coalition and um, age coalition now. So let's, how can we band-aid this by doing all these circumvisions of democracy to where we can win this time? We'll worry about 2026 later. Uh, Tim, Catherine mentioned the draft age. You're probably closer to the age when that happened where people couldn't vote until they were 21 and they were having to fight in Vietnam, and that's why the voting age lowered. What are folks even of that age that are now in their 70s and late 60s going to say when they hear about reversing this trend? Well, how could anyone how could anyone be in favor of taking away the right of a whole generation of voters? Now, remember this: the oldest members of Generation Z are 26. It ain't no it ain't, it ain't no accident he wanted to raise it to 25 because it would basically wipe out a whole generation of voters. Who, no matter what age they are, and yes, I do remember when the voting age was was 21. I got a button over here, by the way, 1968 that I've got that says if I were 21, I'd vote for Bobby Kennedy. You know, that was in 1968. Uh, but I'll tell you what, Mr. Ramaswamy, and, and a lot of them know. And that's the fact that Generation Z voters voted Democratic in the midterms by 27 percentage points over the Republicans. That is massive landslide territory any way you look at it. We talked about that Wisconsin race, uh, guys, remember? And, And we expected a close race in Wisconsin this year in that Supreme Court race. It was not close, and the reason it was not close was Generation Z voters piled out to the polls. They piled out to the polls uh, last year, too, in the midterms, and that's why a Republican route uh, turned into a red trickle. Uh, They are voting heavily one way, and you're right, David, this Republican Party, this modern incarnation of it, uh, they're trying to figure out ways to keep people from voting, to keep the number of votes down so that they, even if they become a minority, can still win. And that's what it's all about to them, is winning. But taking away the right of a whole generation of people to vote, and pretty soon... They will be the majority voting bloc in this country if they keep voting at the rates that they're voting now. Yeah, first well, of all, speaking like of that, I, away the, oh, go ahead, Catherine. It's kind of like taking away the right uh, to abortion after 50 years. Yeah. You know, it's like, yeah. where did this idea that you could take rights away come from? Like, it's, uh, it's very uh, troubling. Yes, and it's not popular, uh, and it's particularly no. not popular with younger voters. Um, well, Kim, do you have the sequel to that vote button? If I lacked all good sense, I'd vote for Bobby Kennedy Jr. Um, <laughs> no, I know. don't believe that one. I don't believe that one's going to ride around the block very well. Do you? <laughs> I might buy it. I wouldn't do it. I just uh, buy a button. If I lacked all good sense, <laughs> you know, I'd, I'd like the the. Um, Vaccine denier that, that is a Democratic apologist for Tucker Carlson. Good, good job there. Um, well, let me ask one more thing about uh, Vivek. Um, what does he expect to gain out of this? Obviously, he's running for office, Catherine. Does this in any way help his campaign? I, I don't. I don't know. I don't see a. I don't see a. I don't see a path that this helps him. But maybe I don't know. I don't. I I I don't know. I don't know how you. Uh, 
I don't know what that calculation would be, like how people would approve of that. Because yeah. I mean, for Kim, some people, it's their children. They're they're taking their children's right to vote away, right? I mean, there's a lot of people oh, yeah. who have yeah, their grown children. Yeah, you're children, your grandchildren, your great grandchildren, whomever. Yeah. You're, 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 uh, Tim, does you, this help you, in any way? It, it it got him one thing. It got him a news. I mean, if well, we heard anything else about him in this campaign, Trump and and to a lesser degree, DeSantis have been uh, taking up all the oxygen in the room. I think he thought if he just made uh, some outlandish and controversial proposal, at least would pe- uh, people might notice who said it. But uh, I, I don't. Uh, you know, I think it got him one news cycle, uh, and and that was all that got him. What do you think, David? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I guess yeah, he gets a little attention. I mean, I, I, I've said it over and over. First and foremost, Donald Trump's going to win this campaign. So I mean, maybe for somebody yes. like him, you, you get a little attention. Although I do think, you know, you got this Republican Party, and if you're someone like. Vivek Rasaswamy, that you have a different ethnicity than a lot of these MAGA voters that have a very unusual name for a lot of these MAGA voters, the really you're not going to get those folks. The folks you can get in the Republican Party or independents is the way to get them would be this I'm the smartest guy in the room and I have these free market principles. And I'm going to solve problems by using the free market, no government intervention. It's, it's a message that we don't agree with, but still more of an open-minded message that's smarter, that's more intellectual. That seems like the way he should go. 25, year old is now, 25 years old is now the voting age. That just sounds archaic. You know, those children, we've got to keep them under control. That's not going to sell to anybody with any good sense. Uh, and no. so I just – it's just weird. It's not going to work. And once again, we talked about how the Trump town hall will be used against him in the general election. I bet there's a Democratic ad right now. The Republicans want to do this. It can be used against Senate candidates. It can be used against House candidates. It can be used on every college campus on every social media that, that targets people that are under 30, Republicans yep. want to take away your right to vote. It doesn't matter if Trump said it. It doesn't matter if Rick Scott or you know whomever running for office said it. A Republican said it, and now um, the Democrats can use it against the Republicans because this guy said it. So I think that's going to happen, and he's going to regret he said this, um, and the Republicans are going to regret he said this. So – We'll see how things go, um, but great show tonight. Glad Mill and Sink could come on the show. Next week we have one of our recurring favorite guests um, from California. Steve Singizer is going to come on the show. We've talked a lot, Steve, a lot about education issues, and certainly somebody will do some asinine thing with education before Steve comes on, and we'll have to talk about it. But we're going to pay particular focus to the fact that he's a California political observer living in Los Angeles and talk about that very interesting U.S. Senate race, essentially a U.S. Senate primary, but it is an open primary, so a U.S. Senate race. So until next week, it's been the Cozy Vine. Not Good night, night, guys. We are the heirs of that first revolution with a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world. America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. 
Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.